TCR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Three CR would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Borowang people at the Kulin Nations, true honest caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. Three CR pays respect to elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledges the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Biscuit grass now overgrows Through a sleeping postal town Mountains peeking over clouds Watching all men soaking sun Reminded of a different time When they came searching Mike. 
Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. Fight for your mic. You are on 3CR Radio and that song we just heard was Searching for Gold by Honeymoon Bridge. Uh, it is five past seven in the morning. I am here with MV and Emily. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show today. Oh, welcome, MV. It's um, great to hang out with you this morning. Very exciting. I know. Really great to have you in the studio M- today. M- oh, and I also go by M, so it's M, M and Ace. M and M. M and M and Ace. I don't know if it's the other way around, yeah? yeah. Oh, yeah. well, we'll work on that one. <laughs> And it's, I just looked now, the weather's actually getting colder. Before, when I had a look, it was 5 degrees. Now it's 4.9, but it's going to hit a top of 17 today and pretty sunny and windy. Mm. Um, and, yeah, Thursday, 2nd of August. How crazy that it's August already. I know. Do you know what? Some people were organising, like I was at work the other day, and some people were organising, um, uh, the, the, sorry, the manager was organising the Christmas roster for work because the no work way. was a nurse. I'm like, no, that's... Wow. Too soon. Too soon. Oh, I don't want to work. Yeah. Is it too soon? No, I was just thinking about, look how quickly the time ran. That's yeah. I mean, not too soon for summer. Can't wait for summer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the end of the year? Not yet. Totally. Totally. That's But anyway, yes, you are on Thursday breakfast. So this is, um, yeah, it's a good show that's got, going to come, come up. And like towards the end of the show, we've got one of um, Thursday breakfast presenters, Katia, doing some Snap action stuff going yeah, on. So yeah, so she's in the city at the moment. Well, we'll be soon. Um, protesting against, yeah, to demand an end to youth incarceration um, yeah. with the conference that's going on about prisons. So they're doing a snap actionist outside that. And we'll be cutting live to her at about quarter past eight this morning. Yeah. And that's pretty um, amazing because that's Cardia's sort of like one of Cardia's core business sort of interests as well, isn't it? Like working with prison abolition. So it's, I'm sure she's going to be doing an amazing commentary on what the snap action is about. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and before then, um, we've got a really exciting show. At, at 7.30, we're going to be talking to Jules Kin, who's CEO of Scarlet Alliance, about the ongoing dramas with the My Health record system, because um, there's been some recent changes with that, and in particular, the impacts on sex workers and other communities. Then at 7.45, we'll be chatting with Nikki Madgwick about um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Day, which is this Saturday, 4th of August, and also some other great things that she's involved in at the moment. And at 8 o'clock, we'll be talking with Omid Tofigian, who is the translator of Beru's Bachani's new book, No Friend But the Mountains, Writings from Manus Prison, which is actually being launched tonight in Sydney. So we're really lucky to have a chat with him about the book and about his um, yeah, experiences as a translator. Because it's been like five years since most of these people have been on Manus and Nauru. Like I think it was just a couple of weeks ago they had um, five years too long rally. Just to, I'm pretty sure it was at yeah. the State Library, if I remember correctly. So it's been such long time and Maruz has done some amazing commentary uh, as you know as a journalist and I think he was also a speaker I think he crossed live yeah, on, on so. during the rally so yeah he's he's very powerful very powerful voices absolutely yeah, very helpful so. yeah so now we might go to some headlines I think yes um so I just mentioned before about the whoops sorry everyone 
Um, You're talking about the My Health Records? (laughs) We're talking about the My Health Records. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mentioned about the My Health Records. Um, And, yeah, I wanted to let people know that Australians will be given an extra month to opt out of the My Health Record after Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt has agreed to tear up the legislation behind the controversial system to protect patients from having their medical records accessed by police. So this also comes with a suite of other changes that he's announced um, because he's... So Greg Hunt has insisted that there were no problems with the existing legislation but has said that he is happy to make so-called additional reassurances to address privacy concerns. So not only will the opt-out period be extended by a month but also records will now be able to be permanently deleted after the deadline. Whereas under the original plan, some basic information about all records would have been kept for up to 130 years, even if a patient asked for those records to be deleted. Um, And furthermore, police and government agencies will now require a court order to access patients' data without their consent. Um, Because Greg Hunt was on record um, a couple of weeks back saying that that would be the case, but then there was information released by the Parliamentary Library um, detailing that actually in the legislation it wasn't mandatory um, for a court order or warrant or subpoena to be obtained in order to access that data by the police or the Australian Taxation Office or the ATO or anything like that. And so, yeah, that caused um, massive outrage, understandably, (laughs) around um, concerns around security and privacy. Um, And we'll be, yeah, going through some of these concerns later in the show um, with Jules, because I think particularly a lot of the conversation around the My Health Records has focused on um, security, like data security and privacy, um, and the risk of breaches and the risk of your information being passed on. And Absolutely, that's a massive concern, but I feel like what doesn't get talked about enough is the um, the risks, or we might say the likelihood, of certain people being criminalised, of increasing stigma, of increasing barriers to disclosure and increasing access to health um, for a lot of communities, and that hasn't been as much a part of, I guess, the conversation about my health records, and so I'm really excited to be talking with Jules about that later on. Mm. And I also read somewhere, because um, I was looking at a little, little bit more about the My Health Records, and a lot of people might already have mm, um, yeah. a, a, sort of a, a, a type of My Health Records already, uh, what it, a profile, because there was something called MyGov for a little while. So oh, I there think, still is. Oh, there still yeah, is, yeah. Well, there is, and mm. I'm pretty sure I've got one, but that connects your Medicare and your, your tax stuff. So yep. in a way, you already have this My Health Records, because I'm just like, no, I don't have this. Oh. And I'm like, I actually have... This it's like a central hub of all your information. I know it feels really yeah. held by the government. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. So just saying, so if you have a MyGov, you have a My Health Records. Yeah, just saying. Yeah, you do. <laughs> well, not. I mean, not quite. Because, like, say, for example, last totally. night I I opted out. Um, of the My Health Records last night. So I was like, I'm going to be talking about this tomorrow. Um, and so I didn't have one. I know a lot of people have actually had the experience where they've gone to opt out and then it's been like, you've already got one of these. Um, yeah. But, yeah, you're right that we already have um, centralised data collected on us oh. um, and that there are a lot of risks associated about that, even if it's not health data per se. Yeah. Um, well, definitely. since you opted out, a lot of the story I've been hearing um some of the reading and some of the news is how difficult it is to opt out or how difficult it is to use. Mm. How did you find it? So I found it quite straightforward, but that's because I guess I feel like I'm, you know, it requires a high degree of literacy. Um, it also requires both my made my Medicare and my driver's license. Um, you know, so having to have, there's so many barriers to having ID for so many people. Right. Yeah. Um, and then also, for example, a few weeks back, um, 
uh, I think Vision Australia announced that actually it wasn't um, vision accessible at all. So anyone who was vision impaired, um, the website wasn't actually made accessible mm. to anyone. Um, so there have been yeah, massive issues in terms of accessibility of the opt-out process yeah. for a lot of people. I mean, you also have to have access to the internet unless you you know head along to the post office um, to pick up a form to opt out, but they definitely don't make it easy for you. Of course not. Yeah, because that's, that's the intent. And apparently there's also... Um, uh, yeah, a long wait line on the phone and real concerns about the security of the online opt-out process. And we've also just been notified that you can pick up a form from the post office to opt-out. Um, there's more details of that to come, yeah. so just um, keep your ears to the ground and, and just, just, just do your um, your research. And how long, you said that was going to be extended by a month? Where, where would that month. take us? So that will take us till mid-November, Okay. Um, yeah. which is still... Arguably grossly inadequate. <laughs> yeah. You know, an extra month. So that's now, what, three, two and a half months from now, whatever. Yeah. Isn't very long um, to actually be able to uh, raise awareness across Australia of what this um, system is and the risks associated with it and how to opt out. This kind of came on pretty fast, didn't it? I mean, from when they make it, when they made it public and everything. So it's not a, not a lot of time for someone to really scrutinise and look at this before you're being faced with these choices either. Totally agree. Of that yeah. or your records are going to be in there anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah so moving on to um, one other thing that I think it's really important for listeners to know about and particularly in advance of our conversation with Omid um, later on this morning is that on Monday this week um, in Queensland, the state coroner Terry Ryan delivered his findings from the inquest into the 2014 death of the 24-year-old Iranian asylum seeker Hamid Kahazai. In a scathing 140-page findings report, uh, the coroner Terry Ryan found that Australia held sole responsibility for Kahazai's care and for the failures that led to his death. The coroner said that Kahazai could have been saved by basic interventions at several points during his worsening illness, which was just a you know a basic routine infection of his leg, but that the um, quote compounding effect of multiple errors and systemic failures in the offshore healthcare system had led to his death. And so also in this, yeah, it's so profoundly shocking and appalling and. Yeah, the coroner, so he recommended that the healthcare system on offshore islands be properly funded under the control of doctors or that asylum seekers and refugees be moved to Australia. But I guess what's important is, you know, we would say actually no, that offshore prisons need to be shut down um, and that... Yeah, well, I think the doctors talk from perspective of something maybe taking what is thought to be possible at the moment as, you know, it's been, what, five years and still stubborn about closing mm. it down even with all um, the things that are happening so I guess if we were to say oh take little steps yeah um, put the control in the hands of the doctors and at least they will know um, who they can who they need to send for emergency treatment in Australia or anywhere else where there's a better health service and um, things like this unnecessary um, <coughs> unnecessary loss of life mm. um, for that to happen is, is really, really unfortunate. And where yeah. Australia could have done something as well, it's just, yeah. And Australia picking and choosing, I guess, when they see themselves as having um, a duty of care or having sovereignty and um, control over people's lives and bodies. Because, you know, the only reason that um, 
uh, Kahazai's death was investigated was because he died in Queensland, and so that was technically in Australian custody and warranted a coronial inquiry. Um, and similarly, actually, also this week, um, a death of another asylum seeker has been referred to the coroner, who was Fazal Chigeni Nejad, who died in 2015 on Christmas Island, and so the inquest is currently underway in Western Australia. And so even though Christmas Island is like a remote island, it's classified as being onshore because it's Australian territory. So that's the reason these two deaths are being investigated, whereas actually, you know, since 2014, 12 people have died in offshore immigration prisons. So that's through murder, medical neglect, misadventure and suicide. But only yet one death thus far has been, or now two, have been brought before the coroner. So, yeah, I think that really reveals that, you know, Australia is only willing to take responsibility when they're absolutely forced to. Um, And even then, you know, it sounds like this coroner um, has pointed to the many systemic failures um, and breaches of responsibility and everything that contributed to this death, but it's actually like, I don't have much faith that the Australian government will do anything about that. No, it's you know, a we'll actually policy listen. and they're still doubling down. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we'll be chatting with um, Omid later this morning, I guess, about... Um, about Beruza's experience of being in the Manus prison um, and also about, yeah, uh, well, I'm interested to talk with him about, you know, the, possi- the, the way that translation can be a form of advocacy um, and also about what, yeah, what we can all do to get involved as well to support um, the men locked up on Manus and the um, women, men and children locked up on Nauru and Christmas Island. So I think now... Apech, would you be happy to have a bit of a chat about that, the cancellation of the basketball tournament that we were talking about before? Yeah, I um, found out. Um, so the, usually around July, um, we'll have the South Sudanese Australian National Basketball Tournament. Um, that's been going on for years, um, at least the past six, seven years. Um, now, that, that tournament initially when it started, just a little brief history, was... Even if I was just to put it in my perspective, it was a um, it was a path for participation in in sports in general, but also it um, provided a way for um, a lot of our youth um, to participate in something that is you know much greater than just you know uh, not having any other activities to do or just sitting at home. But it also allowed um, for um, these used to address this issue of saying integration um, um, through basketball, they were able to you know meet new friends um, break into n- into new groups, new environments um, it gave them re- really a sense of belonging um, and all that so uh, all these pos- positive outcomes um, that we 've seen this um, tournament have um, in the community and even um, the white Australian community is I I just feel like we're throwing something good away by cancelling this tournament. And I, I see the reasons cited by um, some city council saying citizens are concerned um, about the youth crime and the fighting and all of that. Um, but even still, the tournament itself still reiterates that this is not something um, that they really... Um, Control is not something they have control over. Like certain, there are some some people who would um, come and you know act foolish and 
give trouble and everything, but it's to blame all these other kids that are participating and playing sports in the right way and, you know, not making any trouble or anything. And then using this, um, this tournament as a way to include themselves in society's participation. It's just, um, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that it is cancelled, but from my understanding, there are many reasons behind it, and there's some, you know, nuances, there's certain angles and things like that that I'm not 100% um, familiar with, but I do see some angles, but, um, yeah, I'd like to um, really mm. just look at that more. Yeah, or I think, but also it seems to me, and again, I, like, you know, I've only... I've been trying to read up on this, and, and actually one of the things is that there isn't that much um, being written about it publicly. You know, I remember you you shared this with us a few weeks ago, and like Katia and I were, like it was, we, we hadn't heard about it at all. You know, I think there's been like one or two articles in the papers, but otherwise the cancellation of the um, of this, you know, massive and really important um, basketball tournament to so many young people in so many communities um, has sort of, flown under the public, like the general public's radar, and I think that's that's quite intentional as well. Oh, it, cer- it certainly is. Um, coming on the coming on the heels of all the negative reporting um, around um, African youth and African gangs and um, all of that, it is. Um, I don't know. It just feels a curious timing for um, that to happen. Subsequently, the the tournament being cancelled and um, and now. Like, not to even <laughs> jump out of this subject, now we're just jumping into these anti-association laws. It just seems like there's a very deliberate um, setup here mm. from the get-go. It starts with African gangs, and as a, result, as a result of that, even though it's factless, we are using it now to have created such a fear in a community to the level that they required or they insisted that a tournament be cancelled because they're afraid of what crime it might bring with it like it's yeah and they've been pretty vague you know I I feel like basketball basketball Victoria you know has claimed that they cancelled it because of security and safety protocols and because they did a risk assessment and found they couldn't go ahead with it but that's very uh, you know um yeah vague general language for actually when you know we know that this is tied up in the general Nar- that these like this hysteria and this racist narratives that are being um, put in the media about African young people. It, it certainly is, uh, and look, we would be lying if we say it had nothing to do with that. That's like it's it's impossible. Like common sense, you would you would make the connection. Now, having participated in a lot of these tournaments over the years, um, I know for a fact, even from my experience. There's no fighting, there's nothing negative there. Even in all the teams, 20, 30 teams, people playing. Mm. You see people across all these teams, they know each other. People mm. are excited to meet each other. Even though we are competing really hard on the court, at the end of the day, you really see people are laughing together. They're all friends. And it's a way to catch up because everyone is interstate. People are busy with their lives, actually working full-time and everything, <laughs> contrary to the African gangs mm. thing. Um, so, um, yeah, to to take all of that away for outside factors where some of these troublemakers yes certainly we share maybe a background or say we share um skin color or anything but to to punish everyone for these actions of a few that in itself is what is truly unfair um what i would have liked was to see like hey look we are saying there's some issues here that not necessarily to do with the tournament we would like to help address those but not 
of like, oh, now, yeah, along the lines with this African gangs narrative that's been started, we are just going to get on that as well, and we're going to believe it, even though we've seen with our eyes as something different, and we're going to mm-hmm. cancel the tournament and punish everyone. Yeah, and, doesn't make sense. and also that, you know, a tournament or, you know, community events and sporting events like this actually is exactly what is needed to, you know, support young people and for young people to feel engaged yes. and to have things to do and to feel a sense of connection. It's, and it's, it's sort of like it's a, it's a paradox. You say, oh, we're, we're afraid um, these youth are not integrating, these youth are not doing something positive. And this is the very definition of these youth trying to do something positive. Yeah, absolutely. Get into sports, and that keeps them away from trouble, participate, and find a positive environment, positive interaction, where it's just, you know, you're competing in a respectful environment and everything with sportsmanship, and then it's taken away. So what is it that you want these these youth to do? You tell them to integrate, to do something better, and then start doing it, and then now we cancel the tournament for them. That's just what I see here. It's it's not, it just doesn't seem fair, and it's also confusing. Like, um, yeah, so if if we really are concerned for these for these youth, let's put them as a priority then, and then we can look at all these other problems that come from the other side, and maybe you'll get them on your side as well, and then we can all move forward. Yeah. Absolutely. And on that note, just before we jump to a song, um, we'd really love to let listeners know about a special program that we're going to be running next week. Um, so Thursday Breakfast is putting together a special broadcast next Thursday, 9th of July, 9th August, sorry, mm-hmm. behind the times. Um, so 9th of August at our usual time from 7 to 8.30. And it's going to be called um, Enough is Enough Beyond Hashtag African Gangs. Yes. Do you want to give us a bit of just a very quick overview of what it's going to be like? Yeah, um, so with this show, um, specifically, we are trying to tackle this issue of African gangs from a, a different angle, sort of give a different view rather than... The issue uh, of the, the narrative of African gangs. Yes, or the, the issue of the narrative of the African gangs. Uh, what it is, like what we're seeing now is um, two main sides say, look, there's an African gangs issue and this is a big problem, crime in Victoria is rising, and then we see the, the counter-argument there's no African gangs crime. It is all being concocted, you know, by mainstream media and some of the politicians pushing it for whatever it is that will fit their political agenda. It is, if it is to be re-elected out of fear, which is the kind of politics we're seeing to be very popular at the moment in the world, you know, that divisive and um, just negative politics. It um, doesn't mm-hmm. work. So um, that's the other angle. What we're trying to tackle from is sort of see what, the, the core of this issue mm-hmm. is. Um, is it African youth? Then we see, okay, well, let's look at what is affecting our youth. What what are the, some of the um, issues leading to some of our youth acting in this way? Um, why is it that this kind of um, reporting, this kind of targeting, why is it, uh, why is there the feeling to, mm. you know, target um, African youth in this way? It's specifically South Sudanese youth and um what and we also just will touch a bit on the anti association laws and what that will mean for some of our youth and also um if we to broaden what it will mean for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth as well. Mm. So um we'll be looking into a lot of these things and we'll try to sort of um uh explore 
some of these yeah. reasons and maybe give a, a deeper, deeper view, perhaps um, giving a bit of an understanding where we mm. can reach um, common grounds. And I think when you say causes, like what we're, I think what we're really hoping to look at is, you know, linking it in with some of those, the broader um, structural and underlying issues in terms of the the um, the racism and xenophobia that I mean has been present in Australia since Australia existed, um, and is you know fueled by these sorts of narratives, and then particularly focusing on also the impacts on um, people's everyday lives, and also looking at some of the really you know amazing community initiatives that are going on as well. Um, and to do all that, we'll be joined by a panel of really exciting guests. Um, yes. TBC, watch this space. Um, mm-hmm. So they'll be coming into the studio and we'll be having yeah, a live panel discussion next Thursday morning, 7 to 8.30 on the 9th of August. So we'll be promoting that over the next week. Um, please share among your networks and please tune in. But for now, we might go to a song. Yes. Everywhere we walk upon in this world, one indigenous group or another has once lived there before for thousands and thousands of years. One of the most intricate and respectful ways to inhabit that place. We need to remember that. You're on indigenous land, original clans. Since beginning of man, countless years out on this land. Living so grand, alarm to command. Intrinsic alarm, never disband. 60,000 plus. Following law before this sight of hand. Through the seasons and sacred plants. Injured storms for many lives spent. From the desert down to the clay pan. Tropics and mountains tossed from Chino Shanks. Sanctified beaches, they were prevalent. Swept with the tide, deeply advanced. Warriors posed so poised in a stance. Outer's wisdom, truth never by chance. Sorcerers, elixirs, and transcendence. Standing in love across every expanse. Message to blind, it's in a hands. Reflects from beauty from all that expanse. Infused with the magic, majestic and grand. Murder your mind, thought of cool land. No more body, call it the band. Koko, Yalanji, Bang. Indigenous lands, always repeat. Indigenous lands is where you 
Listening to Thursday Breakfast, 3CR 855am. We just listened to a new track by Dreaming Now called Indigenous Land, um, which I played because Dreaming Now played, had a really amazing gig at the Gasso last Wednesday, um, where Neil Morris was joined by, um, not only did he play a really great set, but was joined by a whole range of really amazing um Indigenous performers, musicians and poets. Um, so yeah, if you don't know his music already, check it out. But now we're really lucky to be joined by Jules Kinn, CEO of Scarlet Alliance, who's going to chat with us about uh, some of the problems with the My Health Record system. Jules, are you on the line? Yeah, hi, how you going? Morning. Um, so I was wondering, just for listeners who maybe are just tuning in, would you be able to mm-hmm. give us um, a bit of an overview of the My Health um, my health record system and some of the sure. recent changes. Yeah, sure. Look, uh, so the, my health record. I, I mean, one, one of the things though is that, that, that uh, is um, is basically a uh, electronic health record, and the my health record system is a centralised database that retains all of the my health records. Uh, the system's been around for more than five years, and in fact, if you've actually ever been to a, a emergency in the hospital, you will have a My Health record created for you, as many people are discovering when they're trying to opt out. Um, and it's uh, it, it, um, it, since the 16th of July until the 15th of October, you'll have an opportunity to prevent a My Health record being created on your behalf, um, and um, so. It's, it's what's called the opt-out period. Uh, once it's created, um, you know, you, you can, uh, it will be, it means your health information can be shared by a, a wide variety of, um, you know, health professionals from your pharmacist to your podiatrist to your psychologist. And so you, you need to actively lock that information if you don't want um, that to be accessed. Yeah, and so there have been some changes announced in the past um, couple of days, and we were sort of mm-hmm. we had we ran through them a bit earlier in the show. But could you um, again um, just give a bit of an overcap? And also, do you, yeah, do you think that they go far enough? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, look, the changes are welcome, but I think that, that there are still issues, and in particular issues for. Um, populations, um, communities such as ours, like sex workers, um, um, and also, I mean, there's, there's also been issues raised about the fact that um, it still doesn't operate on an express consent system. You know, it, uh, mm-hmm. you know, once you cre- your My Health record uh, is created, it, it's by default set on the lowest security setting to allow the widest sharing of your health records, um, which which means that you need to actively lock each of your documents that you don't want shared or each of your records that you don't want shared. So you need to set your privacy controls. And I guess that sort of assumes that, um, you know, it's sort of literacy about, you know, sometimes very complex medical health information and assessing the sensitivity of each of those and then actually kind of going through the task of, of locking each of those. 
Um, I think the Digital Health Agency said that um, currently only two out of a thousand people are actually activating um, privacy controls, uh, which kind of gives you an indication of, of what's potentially involved um, in, in doing so. Uh, look, the minister has announced that potentially that they're going to uh, add another month to the opt-out period and that um, at least that they're going to mirror real-world arrangements in the sense that, that, that you are going to require us, that government agencies accessing your health records will now require a subpoena to do so. Um, the other significant change is uh, that uh, it, it, it will... Um, Sorry, it's quite early in the morning. <laughs> I've just gotten off the plane from Amsterdam and South Australia, so you'll have to excuse me. Um, yeah, um, and um, the other significant change is that now you can actually delete. Before it was called effectively delete, which meant that if you ever kind of uh, create... Once the My Health Record was created for you, um, you could never actually delete that and, and those records were to be kept by the government for 130 years. So I think that made it very difficult for people who maybe even just wanted to check it out because um, once it was created, you could never delete it. And uh, that's one of the other changes that's been announced by the Minister, that it, you can, um, it, in fact, delete, not just effectively mm. delete. Yeah, which is, I mean, definitely an important change, but um, obviously there are still so many risks um, and concerns around the My Health Record system because Mm. I mentioned, yeah, I I feel like a lot of the conversation um, has been focused on privacy and data security, but what I really want to ask you about is about the increased um, risk of criminalisation of certain people in certain communities of, um, you know, increased stigma and increased barriers to disclosure and accessing health. Um, but before I do that, I just wondered, could you give us a bit of an overview about your organisation? Sure. So Scarlet Alliance is the Australian Sex Workers Association. So we're the uh, national peak body representing sex workers, sex worker organisations and projects and um, and um, networks, um, and we have been around since 1989. Everyone um, involved in Scarlet Alliance also themselves sex worker. Um, that's on every level, from our governance to our volunteers um, to all our staff. Um, and uh, yeah, so we um, involved in kind of advocacy, policy, and representation um, around um, sex work, and as well as um, lobbying for law reform on. Um, on um, sex work laws, which is still, um, unfortunately, pretty bad around Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, yeah, so on that note of advocacy, you know, you released a really great briefing paper on the My Health Record system that outlined Mm -hmm. some of the, um, yeah, some of the things, I guess, that sex workers might want to consider. Um, Could you run us through some of the, yeah, some of the risks that you feel are present um, with this system, particularly for the sex worker community? Sure. Look, I mean, I think, um, you know, given the context of the Minister's announcement, um, uh, I guess some of that has shifted, but it's still, the, the, the risks are still present for us because, uh, you know, we, we uh, recently had done the research project on, on um, stigma in, in healthcare, um, as well as kind of the ways in which sex workers navigate stigma with um, the Centre for Social Research and Health. Um, one of the main strategies that sex workers use is is kind of, um, you know, selectively disclosing. So, you know, you might have a doctor that you kind of are seeing um, for, that related to your work 
and but you don't necessarily want your podiatrist or your you know or, or whoever else to know um, about your sex work. There is still such pervasive stigma and discrimination against sex workers, um, and uh, one of the kind of main perpetrators were was actual healthcare system. Um, and you know we've, we've had many reports of uh, sex workers, you know, um, sort of seeing um, sort of mental health professionals, let's say, and it's you know always coming back to the sex work and um, and yeah, you know, the sex work being kind of pathologised um, by healthcare providers. So I think um, you know it, it is really important. Um, our identity protection is really important. And not only that, it's, you know, I think the My Health record becomes akin to a form of registration uh, because, you know, in um, some states and territories, there is still registration of sex workers. In fact, yesterday in the ACT, a bill just passed to remove registration of sex workers, recognising the significant um, barriers that it poses for sex workers, um, given that, you know, we are um, still criminalised in, in many aspects and, um, you know, uh, depending on the type of work that we do. Um, and uh, so, it, you know, I think uh, having a permanent record of your sex work um, can be used against you, and we have seen it used against our members in, in really kind of unrelated ways to our health. Like, so, you know, being a sex worker has been used against people in child custody cases, in future employment prospects, comes up in, you know... Um, uh, in so like if they want to uh, get a job in the future like working with children for example um, and so you know because of that um, stigma and discrimination against sex workers I think you know there are uh, real concerns for having a permanent record of um, the fact that, um, that that you are a sex worker and and a record that um, I think one of the flaws of the, the my health record is that um, it doesn't uh, you know, I think that people have, have spoken about how it does, um, you know, if anyone accesses it, it, there's a record of the fact that they access it. In fact, the access is, it only shows the access of the organisation or the, um, you know, um, entity that's kind of accessed it. So not the person who's accessed your information. So I, I think, you know, um, so it does, it, it, in essence, provide a bit of privacy to the people that might be accessing the record, but less so for um, the people with the record so mm, it's almost that, ironic um, isn't it <laughs> yes indeed yeah um and and you know unfortunately we do have very inconsistent laws around sex mm. work and they vary state by state so somebody might be working perfectly legally let's say for example in new south wales where sex work is decriminalized and potentially move um to like for example south australia or wa where it's still criminalized and um, and that their health records might be, um, you know, um, create issues for them um, moving into a jurisdiction where um, sex work is criminalised. Um, also, we have different laws for different types of sex work. So, you know, uh, it might be legal to be, for example, a, a private sex worker, but uh, illegal to be a street-based sex worker, um, as it is in, in most jurisdictions. So I think... Um, you know, uh, for that reason, and and also uh, our health is actually legislated under the criminal law in some jurisdictions. Mm. So it, I think that, that that poses legitimate concerns for sex workers in in, in um, the creation of the My Health Record. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and really shows the inadequacy of a, you know, of a national system being imposed, um, when there are so many inconsistencies and discrepancies across jurisdictions. Um, mm, and absolutely. in those, you know, in those gaps, there are such risks, um, in terms of the impact on people's everyday lives, um, and their health yeah, and well-being. Mm. Um, and, just briefly, I know that the Sex Workers Outreach Project did a survey in relation to um, the My Health Record. Would you be able to tell us about mm-hmm. that briefly? Yeah, sure. Look, you know, and there was a lot of interest in the My Health Records because, I mean, you know, sex workers as a community are, um, as I said, you know, kind of used to um, having um, experience, kind of pretty negative experiences in the healthcare system. So, you know, I, I know that they had um, a lot of uh, responses in their um my health uh, record survey um, and you know I think predominantly the feeling of the sex worker community is that um, it would be safer in many cases for us to um, opt out and I mean I think it also um, speaks to the lack of education and public awareness that's been kind of done around the issue too so uh, you know I mean I think that it um, largely the information that's come out has been through media and through um, NGOs and community organisations and activists that have raised concerns about um, issues with my health records. It hasn't been through any kind of informed consent campaign by the government. Um, so I think you know uh, that that's also kind of deeply problematic um, because I think you know given the information that we had about my health records, had it not been for the kind of activism of um, of various quarters, that it um, probably a, a lot of people would have um, had a record and with um, serious concerns, you know, um, and that could have um, negatively affected them in the future. Yeah, and I think that really raises. Um, or shows the importance of, you know, grassroots, um, community advocacy and organising in raising people's awareness, um, of, yeah, things that the government is doing, essentially, um, that they're mm. sort of trying to get to slip under the radar. And, um, I wish we had time as well to talk about, you know, because all these impacts on, um, the sex work community that you've been speaking about, so many of them are also relevant, um, for so many other communities, such as people living with HIV, for trans and gender diverse people, for people, um, you know, with mental health conditions and for immigrants as well. Um, so yeah, I think we're, maybe we can, in the show another time, we can, um, we might try and unpack some of this further, because I think this is, you know, really important. But to end up, because we are running out of time, how can people find out more about Scarlet Alliance? Um, yes, so we have our website, which is www.scarletalliance.org.au. It's one T. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we uh, have uh, a Twitter as well, so you can find out um, ways and, and, of course, you can feel free to contact us, um, that's, uh, if you can, which you can access through um, our uh, website and our Twitter. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Jules, for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Have a great day. And now um, we might go to a CSA. (laughs) (coughs) Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great. Really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. Oh, 
3CR supporter. As Prime Minister of Australia, I am sorry. Live to you from the Aboriginal Ten Embassy in Canberra as part of the Sorry Day Convergence. And here comes Gilla. How you going, Gilla? How's it going? How's it going? Uh, all you listeners down Melbourne, you're missing a great time up here and uh, a great day. Subscribe to your award winning independent community radio station bringing you coverage of community issues and events. We need your support. Call 9 419 8377 and subscribe today. I feel hopeful. I feel grateful. I feel sorry. As an Aboriginal person, let me shake your hand. Thanks very much for being here today. Thank you very much. No worries. Radiothon fundraiser Three Songs for 3CR has a spectacular lineup: Los Zamponistas, Living Out Loud, Juan Perón, Samasan, and more. 7:30 p.m. Saturday, 4th of August, at the Oratory, Abbotsford Convent. Go to boite.com.au or call 9417-1983. Support 3CR and Musique Sans Frontières. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM, with me, M, Apech, and MV. So now I, yeah, now we're going to have a chat with Nikki Madrick, who's a proud Waramai Birupai woman from North Coast, New South Wales, who's lived and worked on Wurundjeri land most of her life. Nikki writes and performs really amazing poetry and works at Hixa, a not-for-profit Indigenous organisation based in Hillsville as community engagement worker. And we're going to be chatting about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Day this Saturday, 4th of August. Hi, Nikki. Are you there? Yeah, I am. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, so I was wondering if we could jump straight in, and would you be able to tell us a bit about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Day? Yeah, so our National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Day is held on the 4th of August every year, and it's coordinated by um, the SNAKE organisation, the National Voice for, National Voice for Our Children. Uh, and the first National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Day was in 1988, so this year is actually its 30th celebration which is really special and incredible um, and each year SNAKE actually make resources that help organisations and services and schools um, as well as communities to celebrate and they can all be found on the website if anyone was interested. There's some really great resources. Mm. And do you know, how did um, National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Day come into being? Um, so originally um, it came out of a conference. Um, it came from... Oh, it's gone blank from my mind, but there was a conference that they were holding and it came out of that and they just really saw a need for celebrating our children and making sure that they were acknowledged, especially our Indigenous children, um, with everything that's gone on and that's happened with our children. 
Yeah, and um, I, and I yeah. think as well because um you know it started in 1988, which was the um the bicentennial. So there were a lot of really incredible um protests that year to in terms yeah. of resistance against 200 years since invasion. And um, I believe that, yeah, it was decided that a day was needed to celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, um, but also yeah. to recognise that so many Indigenous kids in orphanages and institutions um, didn't actually know their own birthday. And so one day each year was set aside um, to celebrate a communal birthday, and that day was 4th of August. So that's sort of where we get, um, where we get this day from. So hugely significant. Yeah, yeah, and it's just incredible, like, how much work Snake put in each year to creating these amazing resources that can go out to schools and communities so everyone can just really celebrate and be a part of this um, and, and really recognise our Indigenous children. And like you said, the ones that don't know their birthdays, that's actually something that um, we come across sometimes at work is that they're people that don't have their birth certificates and... It's a huge issue, particularly, you know, when you're going for just basic things, so basic forms of ID and things like that, you always need your birth certificate as a point of identification. And so it can cause huge issues later on in life because this is one piece of paper. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And... You know, I know you do a bit of work in the early childhood space um, and you've done some things with the First 1000 Days initiative. Could you tell us a bit about the importance of um, early childhood support for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids? Yeah, well, I mean, like, early childhood support is so vital for all children, but especially to our Indigenous children, because all the support and care that we put in now is actually an investment in ensuring that we'll have high chances of those children growing into healthy and strong elders who will someday be able to continue and share their knowledge and their wisdom and their culture with our generations to come. So it's just continuing our our culture and our people and ensuring that we're actually growing into healthier, stronger people. And so that's exactly what the First 1000 Days Australia Movement recognises and is addressing with their holistic approach. And so... The whole premise behind the Australian model of this movement is that family remains the primary and preferred site for developing and protecting culture and identity in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. And so the care and education provided to these future parents and their future children will also help so significantly in closing the gap and so like closing health gaps and education gaps as well as allowing like actual true healing to occur so we can just become healthier and stronger people. Yeah. And are there um, any yeah, any personal reflections that maybe you want to share about because um, you're talking about the importance of um, you know, of kinship and culture and family for um, Aboriginal kids. And yeah, I know when we've spoken before um, you've shared some really amazing stories. I was just wondering, yeah, is there anything that you would feel like sharing with us this morning? Yeah, well, I mean, what we get to see time and time again, particularly, particularly like through the work that I do, is just how powerful culture is in this healing journey and how much it really truly resonates, particularly with our children. Like, I've never seen a group of children just, like, instantly be quiet the way they will when a did starts playing. And it just, like, it mesmerises them. And I have a friend 
who was in multiple foster homes and out-of-home care over the course of their childhood. And for them, culture was literally the only tangible thing they had to hold on to in a time of complete uncertainty. And having their culture and exploring their culture was what got them through such a difficult time. And so I know from my personal experience that being immersed in my culture from a really young age has had a huge contribution to my drive and passion behind all that I'm doing now. And it gave me so much strength to stand loud and proud in my cultural identity, as well as helping with my healing journey. And, you know, my mum, who was part of Stolen Generations, culture was part of her healing journey, which I think is why she made sure it was part of our lives, because she saw just how necessary it really was. And, um, you know, family's everything. Every child really deserves to be loved by their family and every family deserves to be supported to care for their child to the best of their ability. And so we need to be really proactive in our approach to children going in out-of-home care or not having their needs met at an early age, not just reactive, because you can't break a cycle by allowing it to happen. You stop it in its tracks, you make a new story, and you make sure it's a better story. Yeah, and you stop it before it starts. Um, Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, you, you joined us on air a few weeks back um, during NADOC. Um, and so I just want to ask you, how, how did all the events for NADOC go? And also, I think you're part of an exhibition at the moment um, that sounds yeah. really great. Can you tell us about that? Oh, so NADOC this year was a marathon, it felt like, <laughs> because usually it's over one week. But this year it was kind of over two weeks with Victoria NADOC celebrating in the first week and then National NADOC celebrated the week after. And so for us at work, we had events happening across the whole two weeks. So it was very busy, but the events were incredible. We had some really amazing things. Like we hosted um, uh, afternoon tea. That was because of her weekend. We had some amazing women speakers um, and a lot of service providers in our community helped to support that event and make sure it, it occurred. And that was an overwhelming um, response from service providers and community coming together. We had about 100 there, which was insane. And we also got to launch our NADOC exhibition, which we've been working really, really hard on, um, getting our local artists to reflect and respond to this year's NADOC theme because of her we can. And from that, I think this is one of our best exhibitions, really. Like, you walk in the space, and I have to thank the beautiful Jade who works at the Memo because she actually put the exhibition together. And she's done it so well that it all just tells a story. And even though there's so many different artists, it looks like it's all meant to be together, which is really beautiful. Um, And so we have so many different elements. We have sculptures, we have basket weaving, we have paintings, we have drawing, we have a possum skin cloak, we have poetry, and it's just incredible. And so I would highly, highly recommend going and seeing it if you are out in Hillsville. It's at the Memo Hall, and it's on until the 14th of uh, August, so it'll be going down soon, so please go see it soon. (laughs) Um, And it's just uh, it was overwhelming just seeing the, the talent from our community and just so inspiring to be a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm yeah hoping to get there before it closes. Um, and unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this morning, Nikki. But thank you so much for letting us know about this great exhibition and for all the work that you're doing. And hopefully we'll have you back on air sometime soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great morning. You too.
3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. What a great way to start the morning with that track from the Marindas, We Sing Until Sunrise, um, a really amazing Indigenous duo who'll be releasing their album later this year, I hope, or maybe early next year. So now we're really so fortunate to be joined by Omid Tufigian, who's a lecturer, researcher and community advocate um, and who is the translator of Beru's Bachani's new book, No Friend But the Mountains, Writing from Menace Prison. Good morning, Omid. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. I was wondering to start with, would you be able to give us an overview of um, of the book and the process that I guess led to it coming about? Yeah, sure. Um, the book is basically, uh, it, it's really hard to classify. It's really hard to describe uh, because it's a mixture of different things. Of course, um, there are elements of his uh, journalism work and also his political commentary that everyone is familiar with uh, from the articles that he publishes and the speeches that he gives. But it also mixes in uh, a lot of uh, philosophical reflection, uh, psychological observation, uh, folklore, myth, epic, 
it's it's a it's a mix of different things to fuse together in really interesting ways, and um, it, it begins uh, with the uh, journey uh, in Indonesia to the uh, to the seashore where they uh, where the refugees board the boat. Um, uh, it, it depicts the first boat journey, uh, which wasn't successful. Um, that ended up, um, that was ended up nearly dying uh, on that first journey. It uh, then discusses the second journey, um, incarceration on Christmas Island, and then the rest of the book is about um, uh, the systematic torture and um, the the ordeal uh, on on Manus Island. Mm. In and terms of the the, oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, for listeners who aren't aware, I guess, um, Baruz Bachani is a Kurdish writer, journalist and refugee who's been imprisoned on the Manus Island um, so-called regional processing centre since 2013. Um, yeah, just for anyone tuning in who wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I mean, if you um, Google Behrouz Bouchani, uh, you'll get a whole range of different uh, articles and uh, different forms of uh, activism online that he's been involved in. Uh, but I, I guess with the... With the um, Writing process. Uh, I met Behrouz Bichani online uh, at the right at the beginning of 2016. It was just after he started publishing under his own name. Uh, before that, he was using a pen name. And mm, he asked me if I would be uh, able to help him every now and then with, uh, with translation work because uh, I think he only had one translator at the time. Um, and obviously, he was uh, writing quite a lot um, more than a, uh, more work than. And it's um, more work than for one one person to handle. Um, I, I translated one article for him soon after, and uh, the response was really good. And we started to work together, and we really became familiar with each other's style and also perspective on the issue. And he started to send out bits and pieces of the novel. He'd already been, he'd been writing from the very beginning. Um, we first, uh, uh, I guess, from the very first um, moments that he entered the uh, that he was incarcerated and I, I uh, he, he sent bits and pieces out to Munis Mansubi who is the other translator she filed the um, the text messages and put them into a PDF file uh, and then those PDF files were sent to me and I um, uh, and I did the translation uh, I should mention that all the PDF files were like one long text message so you know there was a lot of editing involved as well as translation mm. And what was yeah what was your experience of translating that text given its very specific um, form as you were saying um, and also yeah its content yeah I'm not trained as a translator so it's uh, something interpreting um, verbally is something that I've done pretty much all my life but um, but translating text uh, is something I've only really dabbled in in, um, in the last maybe five, six years or something like that, and it was only just little bits and pieces here and there. Um, so this was, uh, first of all, Behrouz's journalism was my first major introduction to translating. And and then when I, he asked me to translate the book, uh, I was a little bit nervous, to be honest, because, uh, I mean, journalism is one thing, but uh, speeches as well, it, it, it's um, uh, it's not as um, as dense and, uh, and complex, but uh, literature is something else altogether. So um, I was a bit nervous, but I didn't want to give up this opportunity because I knew how important this book would be. And uh, and I, I guessed right. It's, it's pretty much the most amazing thing I've, I've read. Uh, like I said, it mixes a whole range of different um, genres together. 
And I think what was important for me was that uh, it's very philosophical and also uh, very mythical and epic. And, and that um, reflects a lot of the, the training that I've had and also a lot of the research that I do. Hmm. And one thing that um, I find really interesting is the way that I feel like translation really brings to the fore the the power of language and the um, the you know specific choice of words that we use to describe these situations and experiences. Because mm. um, I know you've spoken before or written before about um, you know the, the many euphemisms that get used when describing mm-hmm. um, the prisons on Manus and Nauru. Um, yeah, would you be able to talk to us a bit about um, the power of language and some of maybe the processes you went through in choosing specific words or the, the intentionality behind that? Absolutely. I'm actually really glad you asked this. This is a, uh, For me, it's an extremely important point. Uh, first of all, I think it's important to mention that uh, the translation process I think of, I, I understand as being a, a shared philosophical activity. So it wasn't just Bethlehem and I interacting with each other. Uh, there was also Munis Mansuri, uh, who was my translation consultant. So after I'd translate, uh, I'd, I'd meet with Munis. Um, we'd go through the text. Uh, we'd clarify um, any issues, any questions, um, cultural um, uh, peculiarities, uh, you know, a range of different things. We Actually, our meetings ended up becoming like um, uh, philosophy seminars almost. Um, there was also Sajad Kabgani, who um, who is a, a researcher as well, and uh, I also, he also um, assisted me as a research as a translation consultant. There's also uh, Carolee Jordan, uh, Janet Galbraith, and Arnold Dable, who all these people are referred to in the translator's note of the book. Uh, and of course, there was had uh, uh, three colleagues back in Iran who he'd um, interact with regularly about. Uh, writing the book and about the feedback that we were giving him as as translators and uh, consultants. Uh, when it came to translating particular terms and, and also the sentence structure, this is uh, this is something that I really put a lot of thought into, and we I consulted Beth was regularly about this. We we really decided to um, focus on place, so it was almost like a, a place based. Um, interpretation um, of, of his writing. So one word in Farsi um, could be translated in a number of different ways depending on the location and also the situation at the time, um, uh, maybe even the characters that were involved in those uh, those um, situations, those scenes. So we were very sensitive to um, location. So whether he was having flashbacks of um, being in Kurdistan or whether it was um, on the boat um, uh, leaving Indonesia, to, uh, um, uh, travelling to Australia, or whether it was uh, in different parts of the prison, we, we had a very, uh, uh, we, we were very sensitive to what was happening in terms of architecture, in terms of the natural environment, in terms of um, um, interactions, uh, the, the power dynamics between people. The other thing that's really important is that uh, Farsi uh, uses uh, very long, elaborate sentences with a lot of consecutive clauses, uh, and it's, it's translating that, I guess, mm, you, that same sentence structure into English uh, makes it very awkward to read. Uh, and you know, with, with Farsi, there's a, a subject at the beginning, and the verb often comes right at the very end. So you have to wait quite a while um, until you. Um, 
uh, acquire the meaning of, uh, of a particular sentence. Uh, in Farsi, this works okay because there's a particular kind of um, rhythm and uh, a certain kind of movement, a certain cadence uh, to the sentences. But in English, we had to do something different. So here's where we actually had opportunities to experiment um, uh, in terms of literature, in terms of the literature uh, and the narrative. So we, we split up the, the sentences. We repeated certain subjects, certain verbs, adjectives um, and here we could be we could use different kinds of synonyms and um, and the other the other point is uh, it relates to um, the question that you asked is that um, empowerment and freedom were uh, a priority for us when we were translating We'd re- we really wanted to make this um, uh, a, we really want to give it a particular kind of political vision uh, and uh, convey a particular kind of um, decolonial stance you could say yeah, and um, on that note, do you think that translation um, or translation practice can be a form of anti-racist or decolonial um, practice? Well, absolutely. I mean, I've learned this from working on this project with Bethels. Um I think that one of the problems is that there's a particular kind of um, prejudice um, built into the way that um, not just... Um, Australian society, politics and culture, but, but even in terms of advocacy groups, there's a particular kind of bias or exclusion that's involved when it comes to working with people who have been um, disempowered, who have been excluded, marginalised, stigmatised. And I think translation is one way to actually allow people, or give people entry into certain kinds of conversations and actually to uh, occupy maybe leadership roles uh, because the, the people on um, Manus Island, uh, uh, same situation with Nauru and other detention centres, um, even people in community detention, I think there's a particular kind of insight and a particular kind of political savvy that they um, uh, that they have that I think uh, a lot of the, uh, people in the movement uh um, can really uh, benefit from. Mm. And um, you're involved in a range of community advocacy projects, but I'm particularly interested in the um, in your work with the Why Is My Curriculum White campaign. Would you be able to tell us a bit about that? Oh, definitely. This is something that I've been involved in for a few years now. Uh, I have some colleagues uh, in the UK and... Um, Adam Elliott Cooper and uh, Nathaniel Tobias Coleman. Uh, they um, uh, through them I found out about the Wise My Curriculum White campaign and also its connection with the student movement in South Africa. Uh, the particularly Roads Must Fall and Fees Must Fall campaigns. And when I found out about this, I thought that uh, this is definitely something that's needed in Australia. It's something that uh, I'd really like to. Um, uh, rally people around and uh, I, I really think it's important to um, develop a conversation around the curriculum and uh, and what that really means and also uh, the different kinds of um, power dynamics and uh, uh, different kind of structural issues around uh, the way universities uh, um, are organised and, and the way research is done and a whole range of different issues. So uh, I started the Why Is My Curriculum White Australasia um, Facebook page, and we've so far I've, um, I've really spent a number of years trying to work with different people, trying to bring different uh, kinds of um, initiatives together. Uh, I've given a number of papers at conferences, organised seminars, um, and even written a few things about this. Um, but uh, in Australia, in particular, I think that uh, it's been a little bit slow, uh, slower than I expected. But I think it's something that has potential. 
Yeah, and drawing together the, these three things we've been talking about, um, how do you see the, you know, the, the Manus prison and the, the normalisation of the border regime in mainstream Australian society um, linking together with um, with the colonial imaginary in Australia and sort of the foundational xenophobia and whiteness of the Australian state? Obviously, massive question, uh, um, but yeah, if you could just yeah have any insights about those connections. Absolutely. I think this is so important. I think this is definitely the direction that this conversation and, and different kinds of action uh, need to go, uh, need to move into. The, I think that what's happening on Manus Island, the border politics in Australia are different forms of oppression and discrimination and subjugation. I think this is um, part of a much larger uh, issue. It's, it's, it's about historical injustice. It's about how uh, Australia was invaded. Uh, it's about the whole uh, Western colonial project uh, in, in Australia. Uh, and I think that uh, it's, it's important to learn from what's happened in other uh, parts of the world, but I think there's something distinct to the, um, the colonial project here in Australia. And I think we're seeing that played out in places like um, Manus Island and Nauru and other detention centres. But I think it's, it's something that's existed in Australia uh, and it, it, it's uh, something that's already been experimented um, on um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, on South Sea Islander peoples. Uh, it's uh, it, it's a particular kind of um, uh, structure that uh, has uh, it, it is constituted by a whole range of different sorts of processes and different kinds of uh, um, programs that, that interlock with each other. It, it, it's also um, uh, needs to be considered in terms of um, gender discrimination, um, of course, race, but um, class as well, uh, disability, uh, faith-based discrimination. And I think what's happening with, with Manus and Nauru now is is basically the um, this colonial imaginary or these kinds of colonial structures that still pervade so much of uh, Australian culture and society. I think they're being uh, um, amplified, and I think that will if if people don't resist if there's not um, uh, some uh, collective action against what's happening. Um, we'll see it um, start to seep into um, different aspects of um, Australian society and culture and, and affect everyone's lives because this is essentially, I think, what um, people in positions of power and privilege want to do is is find ways to control um, people far beyond um, the, those that are stigmatised and, uh, and marginalised um, uh, it's something that, um, that I think is the people in power are trying to ingrain into all aspects of our lives. So mm-hmm. I think the issue of Manus Island and Nauru don't just relate to the refugees. This is a much wider problem, and and it's transnational as well. Yeah, and look, I wish we had time to continue this important conversation. But um, on that note of yeah, the importance of collective advocacy. Um, uh, how, just very briefly, how can people find out more about the Why Is My Curriculum White campaign and also about the Rusby Chinese new book? Uh, definitely. It's, um, uh, if you look on Facebook, Why Is My Curriculum White Australasia, um, but also check out the original Why Is My Curriculum White Facebook page that's uh, um, it's based in the UK. Uh, also, I've, I've written a number of things online, so just 
basically typing my, my name and why is my curriculum white, uh, and also keep an eye out for new things coming up. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm currently working on a number of different projects that will be released uh, this year and maybe early next year. And in terms of the book, uh, I think uh, all uh, major bookstores um, are supplying Behrouz um, Bouchani's book, and if you have time to come to the... If you're in Sydney and you have time, the book launches at UNSW tonight at 6 o'clock. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Amir. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. Come along to the Ruby Hunter Foundation Benefit Concert at the Toad Hotel on Saturday the 4th of August at 8pm. Featuring a deadly lineup including The Bits, Dave Arden and the Cucamata Band, Carol Carpany, Will Coyote, Cluster Funk and The Seabirds alongside mystery band The Public Opinion 6. We provide culture for the future. Saturday, 4th of August, Toad Hotel, 8pm, a Ruby Hunter Foundation benefit concert, a 3CR supporter. Shine bright, shine bright, shine bright. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM. And now we're going to be crossing live to Katia Lalo from the Abolitionist and Transformative Justice Centre, who is speaking outside the Prisons 2018 conference, um, where they've called a snap action. Hi, Katia. Hi. Hi, Em. How are you going? So good to speak to you. Um, yes, even though you're not in the studio, it's yeah, great to have you with us. Um, I know. It is. It's great to be on the other line. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, different perspective for once. Um, can you tell us what's going on at the moment? So we're down at the Rendezvous Hotel in um, on Flinders Street in the city, and we're here today to protest uh, the Prisons 2018 conference that's happening inside, um, and it's being sponsored by a number of big prison industry corporations, such as Broad Spectrum, Honeywell, um, Salgard, and um, so they're putting on a, uh, a conference that is going to be looking at uh, reform issues for prisons, how to build better prisons, um, more innovative prisons, and prisons that are, um, as they put, coping with the rise of uh, housing more and more numbers of of incarcerated people. Yeah, and what are you you all calling for? What are your demands? So we're here today to promote and talk about the issue of shut youth prisons. We're down here holding banners and... Um, handing out flyers. You'll have to excuse me because I've been chanting and I also have a cold so my voice isn't very strong at the moment. Um, and so we're handing out flyers about the new Cherry Creek uh, Prison Against Young People that's uh, proposed to be built over the next few years which will incarcerate another 224... Oh, sorry, that's 224 beds. So um, more and more young people in a supermax facility and instead of putting those billions of dollars into building better communities, um, more healthcare, education uh, and housing for young people, we're putting it into prison to incarcerate them. So we're calling for an end to that and an end to all youth imprisonment. Yeah, and when I was looking at the um, the Prisons Conference website, like I think the very first line is something along the lines of, quote, you know, state governments are currently faced with housing record numbers of inmates. And there's, you know, there's a real, like, disgusting irony to talking about prisons as housing for young people when, as you say, exactly what we need is investment in housing and in education, not in prisons. 
Um, yeah, ex- exactly. You're exactly right. Like the if you go on the website for this conference, it does. It talks about how we need to house more prisoners. It's like we don't need to house more prisoners. I mean, if we put the same um, thinking and effort and resources into how to build housing for people in communities, then we don't need to build more prisons. So it's it's incredibly um, ironic and disgusting, really, that we spend so much resources on how to build more prisons instead of more housing. Mm. Are there many people there today with you? Um, we're growing. So we start off with a couple a bit worried that no one will turn up, but we're actually up to about... Um, now 30 or 40, which is good. So it's growing. It's really exciting. That's so great. You can hear a little chant going in the background. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, because you were sort of saying that you have um, a particular focus on youth prisons um, and, on, and on shutting youth prisons. Um, how can people find out more about, about that? Yeah, so the abolitionists, so I'm from, and a number of us down here are from the Abolitionist and Transformative Justice Centre, we're going to be working with other community groups um, such as ISJA and others over the next few months to really build a campaign to end youth imprisonment, but particularly calling for the end of Cherry Creek. Um, so if you go on our website, uh, atjc.org.au, you can get in contact with us and um, find our email address there and email us to get involved. Um, we're really looking to grow support for this um, really important issue. Um, an issue that affects, uh, oh, that, you know, there's an extreme amount and overrepresentation of young Aboriginal and African young people in prison. So this is an issue about race as well. So we're kind of calling on people to get involved and support communi- people in our community that are criminalised and call for an end to imprisonment. Mm. Absolutely. And if any listeners, you know, um, around the city really encourage you to get down there um, and join you and everyone else. Um, and maybe, yeah, not, not next week because we'll be having our special broadcast on the Beyond yes. African Gangs um, movement, but maybe the following week we could have um, a sort of more lengthy discussion about the Shut Youth Prisons movement um, and how people can get involved and what's so important about it. That would be fantastic. Love to do that. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Katia. Um, good luck this morning. I oh no, I think MB wants what? to say something. No, Katia. No, uh, it's yes, just, just MB. Yeah. No. So uh, maybe I missed this, but where can we come and meet you after work or after the the broadcast? Where should we meet you and what should we oh, bring? Oh, people want to come down mm. and join. Yeah, we'll be here probably for at least another hour while all the delegates are going into the conference. So we're down at Rendezvous Hotel. Uh, it's 328 Flinders Street. It's very close to Elizabeth Street entrance of Flinders Street Station. Awesome. So come down, you'll see us all in colour and banners. So it's great. Perfect. Well, I'm working on Spencer Street today, so I'll swing by and say hi. Excellent. Well, love that, MB. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much, Cardia. Thanks, heaps. See you later. Bye, Thanks, Katia. Thanks, Bye, Hi. <laughs> Wonderful. So we're nearing the end of our show today, but just two really quick community announcements that we wanted to share with you. 
Yeah, just um, for, forget. So this Saturday, um, the fourth of August, the Ujamaa Community Festival, um, will be on. It will be uh, Victoria University Witten Oval. So that's four seventeen Barclay Street in Footscray, and um, this is uh, the Ujamaa is a Swahili word meaning extended family. The Ujamaa Community Festival is a celebration of the African communities in Victoria and promotion of cultural diversity in the wider community. Um, it has been brought to you by the Western Bulldogs Community Foundation and the African Gangs social media campaign or hashtag African Gangs. Um, so, yeah, come along um, if you'd like. Um, I think we're both going to be there. Yeah, we're, we're yeah. going to be there and we're going to be, um, yeah, you know, talking to some people around. So um, stay tuned to hear some of the thoughts um, yeah. around there. There'll be like um, really good African food, art, music, craft and cultural entertainments and so much more. So, yeah, come join us, have a chat. And, you know, let's um, show these, uh, all these negative and attacking people in our communities that we are united, um, that there is something positive going on there, and there's a lot to offer, and, you know, you can still have fun, and there's certainly nothing to be scared about from the African community. And please tune in next week to our special broadcast, Enough is Enough, Beyond African Gangs, which will be, you know, our normal time, 7 to 8.30 on Thursday breakfast, and we'll be joined by a really amazing panel um, of guests in the studio for a live discussion. Um, So, yeah, really hope that you can all tune in next week. And that's all we have time for this morning, I think. That's all we have time for. So, yeah, thank you, for, uh, you both, for having me on this morning. Oh, and thanks just been for able being to hang here. Out. Oh, it's been really thank wonderful. Thank you for being here, Envy. Not a problem. And next is um, Lost in Science. See you next time. See you. Have a great day, everyone.